It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular podcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing some of the craziest trials in United States history, from the very first televised trial in 1979 for serial killer Ted Bundy, the criminal justice system has fascinated the American public. 16 years later, when O.J. Simpson's verdict was delivered live on TV, 150 million people tuned in to see it. Today, our clips take a look at some of the tactics used in the courtroom to convince the jury of the defendant's guilt or innocence. One possible reason we're so enthralled with criminal trials is the strategies used by either side. A good defense attorney will stop at nothing to clear their client. And some prosecutors have been known to employ less than sterling methods to try to put the defendant away. The tactics used by lawyers aren't just designed to appeal to a jury's logic, they're designed to appeal to a jury's emotions. Perception of guilt or innocence can make or break a defendant's chances. But so can the jury's perception of their lawyer. Researchers Steve M. Wood, Lori L. Sikafuse, Monica K. Miller, and Juliana C. Chomos found that an attorney's closing argument is one of the most important impressions made on a jury and has a substantial impact on the verdict. The researchers also found that defense attorneys who appear aggressive are more likely to get a not guilty verdict. However, those who appear to cater to the jury too much are likely to get a verdict in favor of the prosecution. Our first clip comes from Parcast original Crimes of Passion, covering the trial of Lorena Bobbitt. Lorena made headlines in 1993 when she cut off her husband's penis while he was sleeping, drove off in her car, and threw it out the window. Lorena described the act as a moment of rage. Not only had John sexually, physically, and emotionally abused her during the course of their marriage, he had raped Lorena earlier that night. Lorena's attorneys decided to use this history of abuse in their defense. They wouldn't try to hide the fact that Lorena had committed the crime. Instead, they would argue that years of domestic violence had caused her to snap. In November of 1993, 26-year-old John Bobbitt stood trial on the charge of sexually assaulting his wife. Despite Lorena Bobbitt's testimony that her husband raped her, the jury ultimately decided there wasn't enough physical evidence to convict, and they found him not guilty. After the trial, John embarked on a publicity tour, 
hoping to cash in on his newfound fame. He had hefty medical bills to pay following the surgery to reattach his penis, and he didn't have any medical insurance. John sold t-shirts emblazoned with the catchphrase, Love Hurts, among other trinkets. He went on the air with various radio personalities around the country, including shock jock Howard Stern. Stern later hosted a pay-per-view fundraising telecast in John's honor on New Year's Eve. The show included topless women and a giant penis-shaped tracker to illustrate the amount of money raised. But a bigger circus was on the horizon. Next came the trial of John's estranged wife, Lorena, scheduled for early 1994. Since the jury had cleared John on the charge of sexual assault, prosecutors were hopeful that Lorena might plead guilty and agree to a deal to avoid trial. But Lorena refused. She was not yet an American citizen, and she worried that her legal status as an immigrant would be jeopardized by pleading guilty to a felony. Lorena decided to take her chances and go to trial, hoping that she would be found innocent. The fact that she had cut off her husband's penis was not in dispute, but her lawyers argued that she should be found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Under Virginia law, her defense attorneys had to show that Lorena acted on irresistible impulse, a rare and difficult to argue defense. W. Lawrence Fitch, a professor of psychiatry and criminal law at the University of Virginia Law School, said that irresistible impulse is very hard to prove because it's difficult to show that someone was unable to exercise control. The question is whether she had the capacity to control her behavior but chose not to. The law in Virginia requires one to show that practically nothing would have deterred the behavior. The defense also had to prove that the irresistible impulse was caused by some mental disorder. In Lorena's case, they intended to put forth evidence that suggested that Lorena possibly suffered from several mental health problems, including battered women's syndrome. Battered women's syndrome is a concept developed by psychotherapist Lenore Walker. It describes a set of symptoms experienced by women who endure long-term domestic abuse. Walker called it a subtype of post-traumatic stress disorder. Since the late 1970s, lawyers have used the diagnosis in the defense of women who kill their abusive spouses. Lorena's lawyers hoped they could also use it to help show that Lorena wasn't responsible for her actions when she maimed John. On January 10, 1994, 25-year-old Lorena's trial began. No cameras were allowed in the courtroom at John's case, but the media had free reign to broadcast Lorena's. News outlets prepared for wall-to-wall coverage. Reporters came from around the country as well as Europe and South America. One Manassas resident said, the vultures have really descended on us. It looks like Super Bowl Sunday. But the media was only responding to the public's fervent demand. A Newsweek poll showed that 60% of the country followed the case. A Washington Post article noted that when CNN aired an announcement from President Bill Clinton regarding an agreement to destroy nuclear warheads, hundreds of viewers called to complain that the announcement preempted coverage of Lorena Bobbitt's trial. The Los Angeles Times quoted Geraldine Ross, a specialist in anxiety disorders, to explain the public's obsession with the case. She said, 
literature is filled with references to castration. It's man's worst fear. What people find so frightening and at the same time fascinating about this case is that somebody actually did it. Despite the disruptive atmosphere surrounding the courthouse, the trial had to proceed. When John was tried for sexual assault, Lorena was not permitted to discuss the prior abuse she suffered during her marriage, but at her own trial, this history became a central focus. In that clip from Crimes of Passion, Lorena Bobbitt's attorneys used a defense of irresistible impulse to justify her crime. In order for this to succeed, they had to prove two separate things. First, that Lorena suffered from battered woman syndrome due to John's years of abuse. And two, that she was mentally and physically unable to control herself from committing the act. They were successful on both counts. The jury found Lorena not guilty by reason of insanity, which meant she could not have been held liable for her actions. She spent 45 days at Central State Hospital and was released. Criminal lawyers continue to use battered woman syndrome, but it remains controversial. For one thing, it lacks a standard medical definition that can guide evaluations and testimony. For this reason, it's tricky to know how a jury will respond. It's never a slam dunk for defense attorneys. Sometimes it's not the lawyer who comes up with a brilliant defense. It's the person on trial. Coming up, we'll see how the accused can influence their own defense. Now back to the show. As we've covered, there are many tactics that defendants and attorneys can use to appeal to a jury. Sometimes those arguments are more about emotion than logic. In our next clip from ParCast original Female Criminals, we'll take a look at Tichuba, one of the first people accused in the Salem witch trials of 1692 and 1693. Tichuba, an enslaved woman, confessed on the stand that she had participated in witchcraft. But like Lorena Bobbitt, she said her actions were out of her control. When she entered the courtroom, Tichuba's eyes were downcast. She wasn't defiant like the two Sarahs. Yet as the magistrates began to question her, Tichuba denied any knowledge of witchcraft. In a quiet, strong voice, she insisted she had no involvement with evil spirits, and she didn't know who'd hurt the girls. In the galley, Reverend Paris glowered. Simultaneously, the four afflicted girls resumed convulsing and howling in pain, just as they had when Good and Osborne denied the charges against them. Tichuba knew what was expected of her. She was supposed to be the star witness in the case. The night before, the reverend ordered her to confess to witchcraft. If she didn't, she would probably be convicted anyway and severely beaten by her enslaver. If she confessed, at least she'd be back in Paris's good graces. Tichuba met his eyes again. He might not be on good terms with the village council, but his power as the community's reverend was still sufficient to allow him to visit Tichuba in jail whenever he desired. He could beat and torture her if she refused to confess, and nobody would say a word. Magistrate Hathorne asked again who had hurt the children. Paris leaned forward in his chair. 
With a heavy heart, Tituba replied, The devil, for aught I know. She told the magistrates that a man with white hair had visited her and ordered her to serve him. He'd threatened to kill the children if she refused. This was what everyone had been waiting for. The meeting house fell silent. Even the four sick girls stopped writhing and complaining of pain. They settled back in their seats, slumping as if Tituba's confession had cut their marionette strings. The magistrates demanded more details. Tituba eagerly obliged. Now that she'd made the decision to confess, the rest came easily. She explained how the man sometimes visited her in the shape of a dog. She described the gifts he offered her to entice her to serve him. She told the court that Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne had traveled in spectral form to hurt the children every night, accompanied by two women from Boston. They were very strong and dragged Tituba along with them. They forced her to pinch the girls. She told the court that if she declined to hurt the children, a gang of spectral cats threatened her. Tituba's confession was striking, but peppered with uncertainty. Over and over, she ended sentences with, I think, and waited for the magistrate's next question to tell her whether or not her guess was correct. Asked to describe the devil's human form, she said, A man with white hair, I think. But if any of the onlookers noticed that Tituba appeared to be telling the magistrates whatever they wanted to hear, nobody said a word. Of course, it was what they wanted to hear, too. Though the Puritan religion didn't include a formal confession ritual, they still greatly valued the disclosure of sins, followed by reconciliation. A parishioner who'd sinned against the community often wrote an apology letter and pinned it to a public message board in the meeting house. Generally, one who confessed was swiftly forgiven. Even a contrite sinner claiming to have practiced magic under duress might someday be forgiven. But someone who outright denied being a witch, without any sign of remorse, was just too dangerous to ever absolve. It's remarkable that Tichiba was the only one of the first three accused witches to realize this. Perhaps it was because she was the last to be questioned, or because Reverend Paris had demanded her confession. But she was also the only accused witch who'd ever observed the Puritan religion from an outside perspective. She alone had the ability to truly see the ironies and contradictions in their theology. Viewing Tituba's remarkable confession in this light shows it for what it truly was. Not capitulation, but an act of defiance. She couldn't free herself. She couldn't stop the witch hunt. She couldn't return to her homeland or her people. But she could psychologically manipulate her jailers and perhaps in the process, save herself from the gallows. In that clip from Female Criminals, Tichiba gave a false confession, to brilliant effect. Her willingness to confess was seen as honesty by her Puritan accusers. Tichiba later retracted her confession, saying it was coerced by Reverend Paris, who beat and tortured her in jail. But it spared her life. 
Unlike most of the other accused witches, she wasn't hanged. She stayed in jail until Governor Phipps pardoned prisoners. Like Tichiba, the subjects of our final clip confessed under duress to a crime they did not commit. Not only that, their counsel, in some cases, did more harm than good. A defense attorney has two jobs. One, make sure that their client receives a fair trial, and two, plant reasonable doubt in the mind of the jury as to their guilt. Lawyers employ a variety of tactics to do this. One is the cross-examination of witnesses, but sometimes their line of questioning winds up negatively affecting their own case. In our final clip from Parcast Original Not Guilty, we look at the 1990 trial of the Central Park Five, five black and Latino teenagers who were tried and convicted of a brutal rape and assault in Central Park. The five defendants had separate defense counsels, and each attorney took a different approach to getting a not guilty verdict for their clients. On October 22, 1990, only six weeks later, Letterer stood before the jury convened for Corey and Kevin. Her opening statement laid out basically the same case that she had presented against the other teenagers, she would bring the witnesses from the park that night who would describe their attackers, and the jury would hear the boys describe those same attacks in their own words, as well as their assault of Trisha Miley. Letterer was bolstered by the fact that she had already won guilty verdicts with this strategy. Not only did she have practice from the first case, but the other guilty verdict would go a long way in helping her to convince the jury here the seed was already planted in their minds. Throughout Letterer's opening statement, Corey was visibly upset. He muttered under his breath, lies, lies, lies. Once she concluded, while the jury filed out of the room, Corey reached a breaking point. He cried out, quote, no, 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 I can't take this. Oh Lord Jesus, no, it's not all right. It's wrong, no, no. This woman's lying. Oh, Lord Jesus, she's lying. End quote. Attorney Howard Diller, who hadn't tried a major criminal case before, previewed a meager defense for his client in his opening statement. He didn't dispute the validity of Kevin's confession and made no mention of coercion. Instead, he pointed out to the jury that in those tapes, Kevin said he was not a participant, only a spectator. The Richardson family was shocked by this approach and tried to hire another attorney for Kevin, but Judge Galligan didn't want the change in representation to delay the trial or possibly lay the groundwork for a mistrial, so he denied the request. Attorney Colin Moore's approach couldn't have been more different than Diller's. Moore was politically outspoken with NAACP pedigree. He had taken on Corey's case pro bono and would spend the entire trial showing the jury how and why Corey Wise's statement was coerced. He stressed for them how much Corey's statement changed over his four interviews, which were recorded as part of 17 hours of questioning. He asked the jury what happened between those interviews in all that time when the camera was switched off. Once again, Letterer paraded the park victims, she called the detectives to describe their interrogations. She had the clinical pathologist walk the jury through the poster-sized images of Trisha's injuries. 
She played the videotapes, letting the boys describe their attack themselves. And once again, Trisha Miley took the stand, though she still had no memory of the events of the 19th. But while the previous defense lawyers had declined to question, Colin Moore took the opportunity. It was another political statement. He had seen plenty of women forced to suffer interrogation after being assaulted, and he didn't think Trisha should be treated differently. So for 35 minutes, he tried to prove the boyfriend theory, that her rapist was actually her boyfriend. But Trisha held firm to her explanation, strongly answering all of Moore's questions. To the jury, it didn't help Moore's case. It just made him look like a bully. And that characterization overshadowed his otherwise deft handling of a case to prove coercion. For example, when he cross-examined Detective John Hardigan, he asked, You wanted Corey to tell you that he was involved in the rape of Trisha Miley. That's what you wanted, isn't it? Hardigan replied, I wanted him to tell the truth. But Moore kept pushing, asking, This was your version of the truth, right? Hardigan said finally, That's what I believed to be the truth. In that clip from our Not Guilty episode on the Central Park Five, the defendant's confessions were later proven to be coerced. But at the time of the trial, all five teenagers were found guilty of rape and sentenced to jail. Twelve years after the trial, a serial rapist named Matthias Reyes confessed to the crime. DNA evidence confirmed that he was the actual assailant. Because of Reyes' confession, the DNA evidence, and the clear acknowledgement the teenagers had been questioned without an attorney or parents present, the convictions of the Central Park Five were vacated in 2002. All of the tactics we discussed today were designed to manipulate the jury's perception. In the case of Lorena Bobbitt, her attorneys wanted the jury to see Lorena as an abused wife who couldn't control her actions. Colin Moore, one of the defense attorneys for the Central Park Five, wanted to cast doubt on the victim's story and increase reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury that his client was responsible. For Tichiba, she knew that if she showed herself willing to comply with her accusers and honest enough to confess, she could possibly save her own life. All of these strategies were designed to make the defendant look credible and trustworthy, attributes that researchers Neil Brewer and Kipling D. Williams say are the most important traits jurors consider when evaluating the guilt or innocence of a defendant. Thanks for tuning into Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Crazy Trials. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on indoctrination. We'll cover what tactics criminals use to indoctrinate their victims and why they work. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Crimes of Passion, Female Criminals, and Not Guilty on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.